0: The Dunwich Horror by H.P. Lovecraft Gorgons and Hydras and Chimeras, dire stories of Kalano and the Harpies, may reproduce themselves in the brain of superstition, but they were there before. They are transcripts, types, the archetypes are in us, and eternal. How else should the recital of that which we know in a waking sense to be false come to affect us at all? It is what we naturally conceive terror from, such objects. Considered in their capacity of being able to inflict upon us bodily harm, these terrors are of older standing. They date beyond body, or without the body, they would have been the same. That the kind of fear here treated is purely spiritual. That it is strong in proportion as it is objectless on Earth. That predominates in the period of our sinless infancy, our difficulties the solution of which might afford some probable insight into our anti condition, and a peep, at least, into the shadowland of pre-existence. Charles Lamb, Witches and Other Night Fears Chapter 1 When a traveler in north central Massachusetts takes the wrong fork, at the junction, of of the Aylesbury Pike just beyond Dean's Corner, he comes upon a lovely and curious country. The ground gets higher, and the briar-bordered stone walls press closer and closer against the ruts of the dusty, curving road. The trees of the frequent forest belts seem too large, and the wild weeds, brambles, and grasses attain a luxuriance not often found in settled regions. At the same time, the planted fields appear singularly few and barren, while the sparsely scattered houses wear a surprisingly uniform aspect of age, squalor, and dilapidation. Without knowing why, one hesitates to ask directions from the gnarled, solitary figures spied now and then on crumbling doorsteps or on the sloping, rock-strewn meadows does figure so silent and furtive that one feels somehow confronted by forbidden things, with which it would be better to have nothing to do. When a rise in the road brings the mountains in view above the deep woods, the feeling of strange uneasiness is increased. The summits are too rounded and symmetrical to give a sense of comfort and naturalness and sometimes the silky silhouettes with a special clearness, the queer circles of tall stone pillars, in which most of them are crowned. Gorges and ravines of problematical depth intersect the way, and the crude wooden bridges always seem of dubious safety. When the road dips again, there are stretches of marshland, and one instinctively dislikes. And indeed, almost fears at evening when unseen whip chatter and the fireflies come out in abnormal profusion to dance to the raucous, creepily insistent rhythms of stridently piping bullfrogs. The thin, shining line of the Miskatonic's upper reaches has an oddly serpent-like suggestion as it winds close to the feet of the domed hills among which it rises. As the hills draw nearer, one heeds their wooded sides more than their stone-crowned tops. Those sides loom up so darkly and precipitously that one wishes they would keep their distance. But there is no road by which to escape them. Across a covered bridge, one sees a small village huddled between the stream and the vertical slope of Round Mountain and wonders at the cluster of rotting gambrel roofs bespeaking an earlier architectural period than that of the neighboring region. It is not reassuring to see, on a closer glance, that most of the houses are deserted and falling to ruin, and that the broken steeple church now harbors the one slovenly mercantile establishment of the hamlet. One dreads to trust the tenebrous tunnel of the bridge, yet there is no way to avoid it. Once across, it is hard to prevent the impression of a faint, malign odor about the village street, as of the massed mold and decay of centuries. It is always a relief to get clear of the place, and to follow the narrow road around the base of the hills, and across the level country beyond till it rejoins the Aylesbury Pike. Afterward, one sometimes learns that one has been through Dunwich. Outsiders visit Dunwich as seldom as possible, and since a certain season of horror, all the signboards pointing toward it have been taken down. The scenery judged by any ordinary aesthetic canon is more than commonly beautiful, yet there is no influx of artists or summer tourists. Two centuries ago, when talk of witch blood, Satan worship, and strange forest presences was not laughed at, it was the custom to give reasons for avoiding the locality. In our sensible age, since the Dunwich Horror of 1928 was hushed up by those who had the towns and the world's welfare at heart, people shun it without exactly knowing why. Perhaps one reason, though it cannot apply to uniformed strangers, is that the natives are now repellently decadent, having gone far along that path of retrogression so common in many New England backwaters. They have come to form a race by themselves, and the well defined mental and physical stigmata of degeneracy and inbreeding. The average of their intelligence is woefully low, whilst their annals reek of overt viciousness, of half hidden murders, incest, and deeds of almost unnameable violence and perversity. The old gentry representing the two or three Armageris families, which came from Salem in 1692, have kept somewhat above the general level of decay. Though many branches are sunk into the sordid populace so deeply that only their names remain as a key to the origin they disgrace. Some of the Waitleys and bishops still send their eldest sons to Harvard and Muscatonic. Though those sons seldom return to the mouldering gambrel roofs under which they and their ancestors were born. No one, even those who have the facts concerning the recent horror, can say just what is the matter with Dunwich. Though old legends speak of unhallowed rites and conclaves of the natives, amidst which they call forbidden shapes of shadow out of the great rounded hills, and made wild orgiastic prayers that were answered by loud cracklings and rumblings from the ground below. In 1747, the Reverend Abijah Holdley, newly come to the Congregational Church at Dunwich Village, preached a memorable sermon and on the close presence of Satan and his imps, in which he said, It must be allowed that these blasphemies of an infernal train of daemons are matters of too common knowledge to be denied. The cursed voices of Azazel, Bezazel, and Beelzebub, and Belial, be heard now from underground by above a score of credible witnesses now living. I myself did not more than a fortnight ago catch a very plain discourse of evil powers in the hill behind my house, wherein there were a rattling and rolling, groaning, screeching, and hissing, such as no things of this earth could raise up, and which must needs have come from those caves that only black magic can discover, and only the devil unlock. Mr. Holdley disappeared soon after delivering the sermon. But the text printed in Springfield is still extant. Noises in the hills continue to be reported from year to year, and still form a puzzle to geologists and physiographers. Other traditions tell of foul odors near the hill-crowning circles of stone pillars, and of rushing, airy presences to be heard faintly at certain hours from stated points at the bottom of the great ravines. While still others try to explain the Devil's Hopyard, a bleak, blasted hillside where no trees, shrub, or grass blade will grow, then too the natives are mortally afraid of the numerous whip-poor-wills which grow vocal on warm nights. It is vowed that the birds are psychopomps lying in wait for the souls of the dying, and that they Time, their eerie cries in unison with the sufferer's struggling breath. If they can catch the fleeing soul when it leaves the body, they instantly flutter away, chittering in demonic laughter. But if they fail, they subside gradually into a disappointed silence. These tales, of course, are obsolete and ridiculous, because they come down from very old times. Dunwich is indeed ridiculously old older by far than any of the communities within 30 miles of it. South of the village, one may still spy the cellar walls and chimney of the ancient bishop house, which was built before 1700. Whilst the ruins of the mill at the falls built in 1806 form the most modern piece of architecture to be seen, and the 19th century factory movement proved short-lived, Oldest of all are the great things of rough-hewn stone columns on the hilltops, but these are more generally attributed to the natives than to the settlers. Deposits of skulls and bones found within these circles and around the sizable table-like rock on Sentinel Hill sustain the popular belief that such spots were once the burial places of the Pakumtuks. Even though many ethnologists. Disregarding the absurd improbability of such theory, persist in believing the remains Caucasian. Chapter 2 It was in the township of Dunwich, in a large and partly inhabited farmhouse set against a hillside four miles from the village, and a mile and a half from any other dwelling, that Wilbur Whately was born at 5 a.m. on Sunday the 2nd of February 1913. This date was recalled because it was Candlemas, which people in Dunwich curiously observe under another name, and because the noises in the hills that sounded, and all the dogs of the countryside had barked persistently throughout the night before. Less worthy of notice was the fact that the mother was one of the decadent Waitleys, a somewhat deformed, unattractive albino woman of thirty-five. Living with an aged and half insane father, about whom the most frightful tales of wizardry had been whispered in his youth. Lavinia Waitley had no known husband, but according to the custom of the region, made no attempt to disavow the child, concerning the other side of whose ancestry the country folk might and did speculate as wildly as they chose. On the contrary, she seemed strangely proud of the dark, goatish-looking infant who formed such a contrast to her own sickly and pink-eyed albinism, and was heard to mutter many curious prophecies about its unusual powers and tremendous future. Lavinia was one who would be apt to mutter such things for she was a lone creature given to wandering amidst thunderstorms in the hills and trying to read the great odorous books which her father had inherited through two centuries of Whateleys, and which were fast falling to pieces in age in wormholes. She had never been to school and was filled with disjointed scraps of ancient lore that Old Whateley had taught her. The remote farmhouse had always been feared because of old Waitley's reputation for black magic. And the unexplained death by violence of Mrs. Waitley, when Lavinia was 12 years old, had not helped to make the place popular. Isolated among strange influences, Lavinia was fond of wild and grandiose daydreams and singular occupations. Nor was her leisure much taken up by household cares in a home from which all standards of order and cleanliness had long since disappeared. There was hideous screaming which echoed above even the hill noises and the dogs barking on the night Wilbur was born, but no known doctor or midwife presided at his coming. Neighbours knew nothing of him till a week afterward, when Old Whateley drove his sleigh through the snow into Dunwich Village and discoursed incoherently to a group of loungers at Osborne's general store. There seemed to be a change in the old man, an added element of furtiveness in the clouded brain, which subtly transformed him from an object to a subject of fear. Though he was not one to be perturbed by any common family event, amidst all he shewed some trace of the pride later noticed in his daughter, and what he said of the child's paternity was remembered by many of his hearers years afterward. I don't care what folks think of Lavinny's boy looked like his pa. He wouldn't look like nothing ye expect. Ye needn't think the only folks is the folks hereabouts. Lavinny's read some and has seed some things the most o' ye only tell about. I calculate her man is as good a husband as ye can find the side of Aylesbury. And if ye knowed as much about the hills as I do, ye wouldn't ask no better church weddin' nor her inn. Let me tell ye somethin'. day you folks will hear a child o' Levinies a-calling his father's name on the top o' Sentinel Hill. The only persons who saw Wilbur during the first month of his life were old Zachariah Waitley of the Undecayed Waitleys and Earl Sawyer's common-law wife, Mamie Bishop. Mamie's visit was frankly one of curiosity, and her subsequent tales did justice to her observations. But Zechariah came to lead a pair of Albert Journey cows, which Old Whateley had bought of his son Curtis. This marked the beginning of a course of cattle buying on the part of Small Wilbur's family, which ended only in 1928, when the Denwich Horror came and went. Yet at no time did the ramshackle-whately barn seem overcrowded with livestock. There came a period when people were curious enough to steal up and count the herd that grazed precariously on the steep hillside above the old farmhouse, and they could never find more than ten or twelve anemic, bloodless-looking specimens. Evidently, some blight or distemper perhaps sprung from the unwholesome pasturage, or... The diseased fungi and timbers of the filthy barn caused a heavy mortality amongst the weighty animals. Odd wounds or sores, having something of the aspect of incisions, seemed to inflict the visible cattle, and once or twice during the earlier months, certain callers fancied they could discern similar sores about the throats of the gray, unshaven old man in his slatternly, crinkly-haired albino daughter. In the spring after Wilbur's birth, Lavinia resumed her customary rambles in the hills, bearing in her misproportioned arms the swarthy child. Public interest in the Waitleys subsided after most of the country folk had seen the baby. No one bothered to comment on the swift development which that newcomer seemed every day to exhibit. Wilbur's growth was indeed phenomenal. For within three months of his birth, he had attained a size and muscular power not usually found in infants under a full year of age. His motion and even his vocal sounds shewed a restraint and deliberateness highly peculiar in an infant, and no one was really unprepared when at seven months he began to walk unassisted, with falterings which another month was sufficient to remove. It was somewhat after this time, on Halloween, that a great blaze was seen at midnight on the top of Sentinel Hill, where the old table-like stone stands amidst its tumulus of ancient bones. Considerable talk was started when Silas Bishop of the Undecayed Bishops mentioned having seen the boy running sturdily up that hill ahead of his mother about an hour before the blaze was remarked. Silas was rounding up a stray heifer, But he nearly forgot his mission when he fleetingly spied the two figures in the dim light of his lantern. They darted almost noiselessly through the underbrush, and the astonished watcher seemed to think they were entirely unclothed. Afterwards, he could not be sure about the boy, who may have had some kind of fringe belt and a pair of dark trunks or trousers on. Wilbur was never subsequently seen alive and conscious without the complete and tightly buttoned attire, the disarrangement or threatened disarrangement of which always seemed to fill him with anger and alarm. His contrast with his squalid mother and grandfather in this respect was thought to be very notable, until the horror of 1928 suggested the most valid of reasons. The next January, gossips were mildly interested in the fact that Lavinny's Black Brat had commenced to talk, and at the age of only 11 months. His speech was somewhat remarkable, both because of its difference from the ordinary accent of the region, and because it displayed a freedom from infantile lisping of which many children of three or four might well be proud. The boy was not talkative, yet when he spoke he seemed to reflect some elusive element, wholly unpossessed by Dunwich and its denizens. The strangeness did not reside in what he said or even the simple idioms he used, but seemed vaguely linked with his innotations and with the internal organs that produced the spoken sounds. His facial aspect, too, was remarkable for his maturity, for though he shared his mother's and grandfather's chinlessness, his firm, precociously-shaped nose united with the expression of his large, dark, almost-Latin eyes to give him an air of quasi-adulthood and well-nigh preternatural intelligence. He was, however, exceedingly ugly, despite his appearance of brilliancy there being something almost goatish or animalistic about his thick lips, large-pored, yellowish skin, coarse, crinkly hair, and oddly elongated ears. He was soon disliked even more decidedly than his mother and grandsire, and all conjectures about him were spiced with reference to the bygone magic of Old Whiteley, and how the hills once shook when he shrieked the dreadful name of Yog sothoth in the midst of a circle of stones, with a great book open in his arms before him. Dogs abhorred the boy, and he was always obliged to take various defensive measures against their barking menace. Chapter Three Meanwhile, Old Whateley continued to buy cattle without measurably increasing the size of his herd. He also cut timber and began to repair the unused parts of his house. A spacious, peaked-roofed affair, whose rear end was buried entirely in the rocky hillside, and whose three least rune ground floor rooms had always been sufficient for himself and his daughter. There must have been prodigious reserves of strength in the old man to enable him to accomplish so much hard labor. And though he still babbled dementedly at times, his carpentry seemed to shew the effects of sound calculation. It had already began as soon as Wilbur was born, when one of the many tool sheds had been put suddenly in order, clapboarded and fitted with a stout fresh lock. Now in restoring the abandoned upper story of the house, he was no less thorough craftsman. His mania showed itself only in his tight boarding up of all the windows in the reclaimed section though many declared it was a crazy thing to bother with the reclamation at all. Less inexplicable was his fitting up of another downstairs room for his new grandson, a room which several callers saw, though no one was ever admitted the closely boarded upper story. This chamber he lined with tall, firm shelving, along which he began gradually to arrange an apparently careful order. All the rotting ancient books and parts of books which during his own day had been heaped promiscuously in odd corners of various rooms. I made some use of em, he would say as he tried to mend torn black letter page with paste prepared on the rusty kitchen stove. But the boys fittin' to make better use of em. He'd order have em as well sot he kin, for they're going to be all of his larnin'. When Wilbur was a year and seven months old in September of 1914, his size and accomplishments were almost alarming. He had grown as large as a child of four, and was a fluent and incredibly intelligent talker. He ran freely about the fields and hills, and accompanied his mother on all her wanderings. At home, he would pore diligently over the queer pictures and charts in his grandfather's books while Old Whiteley would instruct and catechize him through long, hushed afternoons. By this time the restoration of the house was finished, and those who watched it wondered why one of the upper windows had been made into a solid plank door. It was a window in the rear of the East Gable End, close against the hill, No one could imagine why a cleated wooden runway was built up to it from the ground. About the period of this work's completion, people noticed that the old tool house, tightly locked and windowlessly clapboarded since Wilbur's birth, had been abandoned again. The door swung listlessly open, and when Earl Sawyer once stepped within after a cattle-selling call on Old Whateley, he was quite discomposed by the singular odor he encountered. Such a stench he averred, and as he never before smelt in all his life except nearer the native circles on the hills, and which could not come from anything sane or of this earth. But then the homes and sheds of Dunwich Folk have never been remarkable for olfactory immaculateness. The following months were void of visible events, save that everyone swore to a slow but steady increase in the mysterious hill noises. On May Eve of 1915, there were tremors which even the Aylesbury people felt, whilst the following Halloween produced an underground rumbling queerly synchronized with bursts of flame, them which Waitley's doings, from the summit of Sentinel Hill. Wilbur was growing up uncannily so that he looked like a boy of ten as he entered his fourth year. He read avidly by himself now, but talked much less than formerly. A subtle taciturnity was absorbing him, and for the first time people began to speak specifically of the dawning look of evil in his goatish face. He would sometimes mutter an unfamiliar jargon and chant in bizarre rhythms, which chilled the listener with a sense of unexplainable terror. The aversion displayed toward him by dogs had now become a matter of wide remark, and he was obliged to carry a pistol in order to traverse the countryside in safety. His occasional use of the weapon did not enhance his popularity amongst the owners of Canine Guardians. The few callers at the house would often find Lavinia alone on the ground floor, while odd cries and footsteps resounded in the boarded-up second story. She would never tell what her father and the boy were doing up there, though once she turned pale and displayed an abnormal degree of fear, when the jocose fish peddler tried the locked door leading to the stairway. That peddler told the store loungers at Dunwich Village that he thought he heard a horse stamping on that floor above. The loungers reflected, thinking of the door runway, and of the cattle that so swiftly disappeared. When they shuddered as they recalled the tales of old Whateley's youth, and of the strange things that are called out of the earth, when a bullock is sacrificed at the proper time to certain heathen gods. It had, for some time, been noticed that dogs had begun to hate and fear the whole Whateley place, as violently as they hated and feared young Wilbur personally. In 1917, the war came, and Squire Sawyer Whately, as chairman of the local draft board, a quota of young Dunwich men fit even to be sent to a development camp. The government, alarmed at such signs of wholesale region decadence, sent several officers and medical experts to investigate. Conducting a survey which New England newspaper readers still recall, it was the publicity attending this investigation which set reporters on the track of the Waitleys and caused the Boston Globe and the Arkham Advertiser to print flamboyant Sunday stories of young Wilbur's precociousness. Old Waitley's black magic, the shelves of strange books, the sealed second story of the ancient farmhouse, and the weirdness of the whole region and its hill's noises. Wilbur was four and a half then and looked like a lad of fifteen. His lips and cheeks were fuzzy with a coarse dark brown, and his voice had begun to break. Earl Sawyer went out to the Whateley place with both sets of reporters and cameramen, and called their attention to the queer stench which now seemed to trickle from the sealed upper spaces. It was, he said, exactly like a smell he had found in the tool shed abandoned when the house was finally repaired. And like the faint odors which he sometimes thought he caught near the stone circles on the mountains. Dunwich folk read the stories when they appeared, and grinned over the obvious mistakes. They wondered, too, why the writers made so much of the fact that Old Waitley always paid for his cattle in gold pieces of extremely ancient date. The Waitleys had received their visitors with ill-concealed distaste, though they did not dare court further publicity by violent resistance or refusal to talk. For a decade, the annals of the Waitleys sink indistinguishably into the general life of a morbid community, used to their queer parts and hardened to their May Eve and All Hallows orgies. Twice a week, they would light fires on top of Sentinel Hill, at which times the mountain rumblings would recur with greater and greater violence, while at all seasons there were strange and portentous doings at the lonely farmhouse. In the course of time, callers professed to hear sounds in the sealed upper story, even when all the family were downstairs, and they wondered how swiftly or lingeringly a cow or bullock was usually sacrificed. There was talk of a complaint to the Society for Prevention of cruelty to animals, but nothing ever came of it, since Dunwich folk are never anxious to call the outside world's attention to themselves. About 1923, when Wilbur was a boy of ten, whose mind, voice, stature, and bearded face all gave the impressions of maturity, a second great siege of carpentry went on at the old house. It was all inside the upper-sealed part, and from Bits of discarded lumber, people concluded that the youth and his grandfather had knocked out all the partitions and even removed the attic floor, leaving only one vast open void between the ground story and the peaked roof. They had torn down the great central chimney too, and fitted the rusty range with a flimsy outside tin stovepipe. In the spring after this event, Old Whateley noticed the growing number of whippoorwills that would come out of Cold Spring Glen to chirp under his window at night. He seemed to regard the circumstance as one great significance, and told the loungers at Osborne's that he thought his time was almost come. They whistle just in tune with my breathing now, he said, and I guess they're getting ready to catch my soul. They know it's a goin' out, and don't calculate to miss it. You'll know, boys, arter I'm gone, whether they get me or not. If they do, they'll keep up a singin' and laughin' till break o' day. If they don't, they'll kinder quiet down like. I expect them and the souls they hunts for have some pretty tough tussles sometimes. On Lamas Night, 1924, Dr. Houghton of Aylesbury was hastily summoned by Wilter Whiteley. who had lashed his one remaining horse through the darkness and telephoned from Osborne's in the village. He found Old Whiteley in a very grave state, with a cardiac action and stertorous breathing that told of an end not far off. The shapeless albino daughter and oddly bearded grandson stood by the bedside. Whilst from the vacant abyss overhead, there came a disquieting suggestion of rhythmical surging or lapping, as of the waves on some level beach. The doctor, though, was chiefly disturbed by the chattering nightbirds outside, a seemingly limitless legion of whip that cried their endless message in repetitions, timed diabolically with the wheezing gasps of the dying man. It was uncanny and unnatural. Too much, thought Dr. Houghton. Like the whole of the region he had entered so reluctantly in response to the urgent call. Toward one o'clock, Old Whiteley gained consciousness and interrupted his wheezing to choke out a few words to his grandson. More space, Willie. More space soon. You grows, and that grows faster. It'll be ready to serve you, boy open up the gates to yogg with the long chant that you'll find on page 751 of the Complete Edition, and then put a match to the prison. Fire from Earth, can't burn it now." He was obviously quite mad, after a pause during which the flock of wills outside adjusted their cries to the altering tempo, while some indications of the strange hill noises came from afar off. He added another sentence or two. Feed it regular, Willy, and mind the quantity. But don't let it grow too fast for the place. For if it busts quarters, or gets about a four, he opens to yogg It's all over and no use. Only them from beyond kin make it multiply and work. Only them, the old uns, as wants to come back. But the speech gave place to gasps again, and Lavinia screamed at the way the wills followed the change. It was the same for more than an hour, when the final throaty rattle came. Dr. Houghton drew shrunken lids over the glazed gray eyes, as the tumult of birds faded imperceptibly into silence. Lavinia sobbed, but Wilbur only chuckled, whilst the hill noises rumbled faintly. They didn't get him, he muttered. In his heavy bass voice. Wilbur was, by this time, a scholar of really tremendous erudition with his one-sided way, and was quietly known by correspondence to many librarians in distant places where rare and forbidden books of old days are kept. He was more and more hated and dreaded around Dunwich because of certain youthful disappearances, which suspicion laid vaguely at his door but was always able to silence inquiry through fear or through use of that fund of old-time gold, which still, as in his grandfather's time, went forth regularly and increasingly for cattle buying. He was now tremendously mature of aspect, and his height having reached the normal adult limit seemed inclined to wax beyond that figure. In 1925, when the scholarly correspondent from Miskatonic University called upon him one day, and departed pale and puzzled. He was fully six and three-quarters feet tall. Through all the years, Wilbur had treated his half-deformed albino mother with growing contempt, finally forbidding her to go to the hills with him on May Eve and Hallowmas. And in 1926, the poor creature complained to Mamie Bishop of being afraid of him. "'There's more about him as I know than I can tell ye, Mamie," she said. And nowadays, they's more know what I know about myself. I vow for God, I don't know what he wants nor what he's trying to do. That Halloween the hill noises sounded louder than ever, and fire burned on Sentinel Hill as usual. But people paid more attention to the rhythmical screaming of vast flocks of unnaturally belated wills, which seemed to be assembled near the unlighted Whateley farmhouse. After midnight, their shrill notes burst into a kind of pandemoniac cashination, which filled all the countryside. Not until dawn did they finally quiet down. When they vanished, hurrying southward, they were fully a month overdue. What is meant no one could quite be certain till later. None of the country folk seemed to have died, but poor Lavinia Whateley, the twisted albino, was never seen again. In the summer of 1927, Wilbur repaired two sheds in the farmyard and began moving his books and effects out to them. Soon afterward, Earl Sawyer told the loungers at Osborne's that more carpentry was going on in the Whateley farmhouse. Wilbur was closing all the doors and windows on the ground floor and seemed to be taking out partitions as he and his grandfather had done upstairs four years before. He was living in one of the sheds, and Sawyer thought he seemed unusually worried and tremulous. People generally suspected him of knowing something about his mother's disappearance, and very few ever approached his neighborhood now. His height had increased to more than seven feet and shewed no signs of ceasing in its development. Chapter 5. The following winter brought an event no less strange than Wilbur's first trip outside the Dunwich region correspondence with the Widener Library at Harvard, the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris, the British Museum, the University of Buenos Aires, and the Library of Miskatonic University of Arkham had failed to get him the loan of a book he desperately wanted, so at length he set out in person, shabby, dirty, bearded, and uncouth of dialect to consult the copy at Miskatonic, which was the nearest to him geographically. Almost eight feet tall and carrying a cheap new valise from Osborne's general store, his dark and goatish gargoyle peered one day in Arkham, in quest of the dreaded volume kept under lock and key at the college library. The hideous necronomicon of the mad Arab Abdul Azared and Olus Wormius, his Latin version, as printed in Spain in the 17th century. He had never seen a city book before, but had no thought save to find his way to the university grounds, where, indeed, he passed heedlessly by the great white-fanged watchdog that barked with unnatural fury and enmity, and tugged frantically at its stout chain, priceless but imperfect copy of Dr. D's English version, which his grandfather had bequeathed him. And upon receiving access to the Latin copy, he at once began to collate the two texts with the aim of discovering a certain passage which would have come on the 751st page of his own defective volume. This much he could not civilly refrain from telling the librarian. The same erudite Henry Armitage, a.k.a. A. M. Miskatonic, Ph.D., Princeton, literary D. John Hopkins who had once called at the farm, and who now politely plied him with questions. He was looking, he had to admit, for a kind of formula or incantation containing the frightful name Yogg-Sothoth, and it puzzled him to find discrepancies, duplications, and ambiguities, which made the matter of determination far from easy. As he copied the formula, he finally chose. Dr. Armitage looked involuntarily over his shoulder at the open page, the left-handed one which, in the Latin version, contained such monstrous threats to the peace and sanity of the world. Nor is it thought, ran the text as Armitage mentally translated it, that man is either the oldest or the last of Earth's masters, or that the common bulk of life and substance walks alone. The old ones were... The old ones are, and the old ones shall be. Not in the spaces we know, but between them. They walk serene and primal, undimensioned, and to us unseen. Yogsathoth knows the gate. Yogsathoth is the gate. Yogsathoth is the key and guardian of the gate. Past, present, future, all are one in Yogsathoth. He knows where the old ones broke through of old, and where they shall break through again. He knows where they have trod Earth's fields, and where they still tread them, and why no one can behold them as they tread. By their smell can men sometimes know them near, but of their semblance can no man know, saving only in the features of those they have begotten on mankind. And of those are many sorts, differing in likeness from man's truish eidolon, to that shape without sight or substance which is them. They walk unseen and foul in lonely places, where the words have been spoken and the rites howl through their seasons. The wind gibbers with their voices, and the earth mutters with their consciousness. They bend the forest and crush the city, yet may not forest or city behold the hand that smites. Kadoth, in the cold waste, hath them known. And what man knows Kadath? The ice-desert of the south and the second isles of ocean hold stones whereon their seals is engraven. But who hath seen the deep-frozen city, Or the sealed tower long garlanded with seaweed and barnacles? Great Cthulhu is their cousin, yet can he spy them only dimly? E'ah, Shub, as a foulness shall ye know them. Their hand is at your throats, yet ye see them not. In their inhabitation is even one with your guarded threshold. yog is the key to the gate, whereby the spheres meet. Man rules now where they ruled once. They shall soon rule where man rules now. After summer is winter, and after winter summer. They wait patient and potent, for here shall they reign again. Dr. Armitage, associating what he was reading with what he heard of Dunwich and its brooding presence, and of Wilbur Waitley in his dim, hideous aura that stretched from a dubious birth to a cloud of probable matricide, felt a wave of fright as tangible as a draught of the tomb's cold clamminess. The bent, goatish giant before him seemed like the spawn of another planet or dimension, like something only partly of mankind, and linked to black gulfs of essence, an entity that stretched like titan phantasms beyond all spheres of force and matter, space and time. Presently, Wilbur raised his head and began speaking in that strange, resonant fashion, which hinted at sound-producing organs unlike the run of mankind's. Mr. Armitage, he said, I calculate I got to take the book that home. These things in it I got to try under certain conditions that I can't get here. And it would be a mortal sin to let a red tape rule hold me up. Let me take it along, sir. And I'll swore they won't nobody know the difference. I don't need to tell ye I'll take good care of it. It want me that put this d copy in the shape it is he stopped as he saw a firm denial on the librarian's face and his own goatish features grew crafty armitage half ready to tell him i might make a copy of what parts he needed thought suddenly of the possible consequences and checked himself there was too much responsibility in giving such a being the key to such blasphemous outer spheres Waitley saw how things stood, and tried to answer lightly. Well, right, if you feel that way about it. Maybe Harvard won't be so fussy as you will be. And without saying more, he rose and strode out of the building, stooping at each doorway. Armitage heard the savage yelping of the great watchdog, and studied Waitley's gorilla-like lope as he crossed the bit of campus visible from the window. He thought of the wild tales he had heard, and recalled old Sunday stories in the Advertiser. These sayings and the lore he had picked up from Dunwich rustics and villagers during his one visit there. Unseen things not of earth, or at least not of tri-dimensional earth, rushed fetid and horrible through New England's glens, and brooded obscenely on the mountaintops. Of this he had long felt certain. Now he seemed to sense the close presence of some terrible part of the intruding horror, and to glimpse a hellish advance in the black dominion of the ancient and once passive nightmare. He locked away the Necronomicon with a shudder of disgust, but the room still reeked with an unholy and unidentifiable stench. As a foulness shall ye know them, he quoted. Yes, the odor was the same as that, which had sickened him at the Whateley farmhouse less than three years before. He thought of Wilbur, goatish and ominous once again, and laughed mockingly at the village rumors of his parentage. Inbreeding? Armitage muttered half aloud to himself. Great god, what simpletons? Shoe them Arthur Machen's great god pan, and they'll think it a common Dunwich scandal. But what thing? Cursed shapeless influence on or off this three-dimensional Earth was Wilbur Whateley's father, born on Candlemas nine months after May Eve of 1912, when the talk about the queer Earth noises reached clearer to Arkham. What walked on the mountains that May night? What rudeness horror fastened itself on the world in half-human flesh and blood? During the ensuing weeks, Dr. Armitage set about to collect all possible data on Wilbur Whateley, and the formless presences around Dunwich. He had, in communication with Dr. Houghton of Aylesbury, who had attended Old Whateley in his last illness and found much to ponder over in Grandfather's last words, as quoted by the physician, a visit to Dunwich Village failed to bring out much that was new. But a close survey of the Necronomicon, and those parts which Wilbur had sought so avidly, seemed to supply new and terrible clues to the nature, methods, and desires of the strange, evil, so vaguely threatening this planet. Talks with several students of archaic lore in Boston, and letters to many others elsewhere, Gave him a growing amazement which passed slowly through the very degrees of alarm to a stage of really acute spiritual fear as the summer drew on he felt dimly that something ought to be done about the lurking terrors of the upper miskatonic valley and about the monstrous being known to the human world as wilbur waitley chapter six the dunwich horror itself came between lamas and the equinox in 1928 and Dr. Armitage was among those who witnessed its monstrous prologue. He had heard, meanwhile, of Whateley's grotesque trip to Cambridge, and of his frantic efforts to borrow or copy from the Necronomicon at the Widener Library. Those efforts had been in vain, since Armitage had issued warnings of the keenest intensity to all librarians having charge of the dreaded volume. Wilbur had been shockingly nervous at Cambridge, anxious for the book, yet almost equally anxious to get home again, as if he feared the results of being away long. Early in August the half-expected outcome developed, and in the small hours of the third, Dr. Armitage was awakened suddenly by the wild, fierce cries of the savage watchdog on the college campus. Deep and terrible, the snarling, half-mad growls and barks continued, always in mounting volume, but with hideously significant pauses. Then there rang out a scream from a wholly different throat. Such a scream as roused half the sleepers of Arkham, and haunted their dreams ever afterward. Such a scream as could come from no being born of Earth or wholly of Earth. Armitage hastened into some clothing, and rushing across the street and lawn to the college building, saw that others were ahead of him, and heard the echoes of a burglar alarm still shrilling from the library. An open window shewed black and gaping in the moonlight. What had come had indeed completed its entrance, for the barking and the screaming, now fast fading into a mixed low growling and moaning, proceeded unmistakably from within. Some instinct warned Armitage that what was taking place was not a thing for unfortified eyes to see, so he brushed back the crowd with Authority as he unlocked the vestibule door. Among the others he saw Professor Warren Rice and Dr. Francis Morgan, men whom he had told some of his conjectures and misgivings. And these two he motioned to accompany him inside. The inward sounds, except for watchful droning whine from the dog, had by this time quite subsided. But Armitage now perceived with a sudden start that a loud chorus of whippoorwills among the shrubbery had commenced a damnably rhythmical piping, as if in unison with the last breaths of a dying man. The building was full of a frightful stench which Dr. Armitage knew too well, and the three men rushed across the hall to the small genealogical reading room whence the low whining came. For a second nobody dared to turn on the light, then Armitage summoned up his courage and snapped the switch. One of the three, it is not certain which, shrieked aloud at what sprawled before them among disordered tables and overturned chairs. Professor Rice declares that he wholly lost consciousness for an instant, though he did not stumble or fall. The thing that lay half-bent on its side in a fetid pool of greenish-yellow ichor with tarry stickiness was almost nine feet tall, And the dog had torn off all the clothing and some of the skin it was not quite dead but twitched silently and spasmodically while its chest heaved in monstrous unison with the mad piping of the expectant whippoorwills outside bits of shoe leather and fragments of apparel were scattered around the room and just inside the window an empty canvas sack lay where it had evidently been thrown Near the central desk, a revolver had fallen. A dented but undischarged cartridge, later explaining why it had not been fired. The last thing itself, however, crowded out all the other images at the time. It could be trite, but not wholly accurate to say that no human pen could describe it. Well... But one may properly say that it could not be vividly visualized by anyone whose ideas of aspect and contour are too closely bound up with common life forms of this planet and of the three known dimensions. It was partly human, beyond a doubt, with very man like hands and head, and the goatish, chinless face had the stamp of the Waitleys upon it, but the torso and lower parts of the body. Or tetralogically fabulous so that only generous clothing could ever have enabled it to walk on earth unchallenged or uneradicated above the waist it was semi-anthropomorphic though its chest where the dog's running paws still rested watchfully at the leathery reticulated hide of a crocodile or alligator the back was piebald with yellow and black and dimly suggested the squamous coverings of certain snakes. Below the waist, though, it was worse, for here all human resemblance left off, and sheer fantasy began. The skin was thickly covered with coarse black fur. From the abdomen, a score of long greenish-grey tentacles and red-sucking mouths protruded limply. Their arrangement was odd, and seemed to follow the symmetries of some cosmic geometry unknown to Earth or the solar system. On each of the hips, deep-set in a kind of pinkish, scillated orbit, was what seemed to be rudimentary eyes. Whilst in lieu of a tail, there depended a kind of trunk or feeler with purple annular markings, and with any evidence of being an undeveloped mouth or throat. The limbs, save for their black fur, roughly resembled the hind legs of Prehistoric Earth's giant saurians, and terminated in rigidly veiny paths that were neither hooves nor claws. When the thing breathed, its tail and tentacles rhythmically changed colors as if from some circulatory cause, normal to the non-human side of its ancestry. In the tentacles, this was observable as a deepening of the greenish tinge, whilst in the tail was a manifest as a yellowish appearance, which, which alternated with sickly grayish white in the spaces between the purple rings. Of genuine blood, there was none only the fetid, greenish-yellow ichor, which trickled along the painted floor, beyond the radius of the stickiness, and left curious discoloration behind it. Then came a halt in the gasping, and the dog raised its head in a long, laborious howl. A change came over the yellow goatish face of the prostrate thing, and the great black eyes fell in appallingly. Outside the window the shrilling of the whippoorwills had suddenly ceased, and above the murmurs of the the gathering crowd there came the sound of a panic-struck whirring and fluttering. Against the moon vast clouds of feathery watchers rose and raced from sight, frantic which they had sought for prey. All at once the dog started up abruptly, gave a frightened bark, and leaped nervously out of the window by which it had entered." A cry rose from the crowd, and Dr. Armitage shouted to the men outside that no one must be admitted until the police or medical examiner came. He was thankful that the windows were just too high to permit a peering in, and drew the dark curtains carefully down over each one. By this time, two policemen had arrived, and Dr. Morgan meeting them in the vestibule was urging them for their own sakes to postpone entrance to the stench-filled reading room till the examiner and prostrate thing could be covered up. Meanwhile, frightful changes were taking place on the floor. One need not describe the kind and rate of shrinkage and disintegration that occurred before the eyes of Dr. Armitage and Professor Rice, but it is permissible to say, aside from the external appearance of face and hands, the really human element in Wilbur Whateley must have been very small. When the medical examiner came, There was only a sticky white mass on the painted boards, and the monstrous odor had nearly disappeared. Apparently, Waitley had no skull or bony skeleton, at least, in any true or stable sense. He had taken somewhat after his unknown father.